Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting December 6th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, you know how us city guys may talk differently from country folk? Well, new research from Hans Slavikoren finds that when birds move from the forest to the city, their songs change too. We'll talk to him about that in our respective accents, and we'll finish up our look at the Scientific American 50 with Evo Menzinger from the company Swiss Re. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, the difference in song stylings between city birds... I'm a chicken hop. ...and country birds. Now, I say cut that out. What's it all about, boy? Elucidate. Hans Slabakoren will indeed elucidate. He's one of the world's foremost experts on bird song, which is often used as a model for behavior and neurobiology in general. Slabakoren and his colleague Ardi Denbar-Visser have a new study in this week's issue of the journal Current Biology. They found that the song of at least one species of bird, Paris Major, common name Great Tit, significantly changes in the city. Here's one of the real birds in the study that lives in the Belgian forest of Riviere. Now listen to another bird, same species, that has made its way in the big city, Brussels. Very different song. To find out why, I called Slabakoren at his office at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Dr. Slabakoren, nice to talk to you today. Hello, how are you doing? Good. Tell me about this uh, this bird song study. Very interesting. What did you actually do and what were you looking for? Well, uh, what I did is I, uh, I traveled Europe went to 10 different city sites, recorded uh, grated um, birds over there, and also went to 10 forest sites nearby those 10 cities to, uh, to get me uh, 10 independent comparisons between city and forest habitat. And uh, together with Ardi Denboer-Visser, we, uh, we analyzed uh, the songs in spectral and temporal features, and we found uh, a very consistent divergence between city and forest uh, birds of the same species. And, and talk about the nature of that divergence between the urban birds and the forest birds. Yeah, so first of all, we were interested in the, the, the frequencies because in the cities we have very uh, uh, low frequencies because of all the traffic noise over there. And we expected in the cities uh, that the birds may use those low frequencies less for their songs. And that's indeed what we found. Like in 10 out of 10 comparisons, we found that the minimum frequency was on average higher in the cities, so they kind of avoid those low frequencies, which would otherwise be otherwise be masked by the by the traffic noise. And ten out of ten—that's pretty statistically significant. There, yes, there was no problem in that respect, and it's quite unique, I think, for a field uh, study like this because noise is not likely to be the only factor determining song characteristics. I mean, there will be many factors: environmental factors, uh, physical factors. And so it's quite surprising to get such a uh, consistent outcome. And the song, in addition to getting higher, got faster? Yes, another difference was that the, the city uh, birds sang uh, their songs faster, and uh, especially the duration of, that, uh, of their first note, the note that they uh, start off the repeated phrases with, uh, that was shorter in the cities than in the, in the forest, and again in 10 out of 10 comparisons. So this was a kind of a novel finding. Nobody has ever found such a thing, that a particular part of the song shows more divergence than another part. Mm. But, um, well, the explanation I have at the moment is that the first part of a song is perceptually very important. It's a, 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 the most salient part of a song. I mean, if you, if you do not detect or recognize another bird is of your own species that is singing, then you, of course, may miss 
some more detailed information that's coming afterwards. So that, that first part is really important as a kind of an alerting component. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why uh, also selection may be working strongest on that first part. Well, you know, it's it's really not a surprise to those of us who live in big cities because when, when if you go to Vermont in the United States, people might talk like this. And then if you're in New York, you're going to be talking like this because you have to to get by. Yeah, you need to be louder. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, people have have looked at human languages as well, and that's on that uh, on a larger scale even. And people have found that languages that have evolved in areas where people live and are usually talking to each other in an indoor uh, uh, environment and being much closer, that uh, the sonority level is lower than in areas where languages have evolved, where people are typically outside and maybe uh, talking to each other at larger distances. And so then sonority level, so the, the, the carrying capacity, like how far sound would uh, transmit independent of the amplitude, that is longer, that is louder for the, the ones, uh, the languages that are used for outside use. Oh, very interesting. Now, one of the really interesting things you talk about in, in your paper is that it may not just be that the birds change their song in the cities, it may be that the birds that we see succeeding in cities are the species that have the capacity to change their song in response to all the background noise. Yeah, I think, I mean, in Europe, uh, people have studied uh, the, the bird communities, and uh, what's, uh, the, the pattern that emerges is that you get a few species that are quite successful, and that those are the same species everywhere, irrespective of the original habitat that is urbanized at that very location, which means that only a few species may be really able to adjust and all the others that were there before, they are, well, they may have been, um, they may have disappeared because their vegetation or their food uh, is gone. But at the same time, it may be the ability to adjust to, well, the noise pollution that may make these birds survivors and may, uh, may make other birds disappear. Talk for just a moment about the, the fact that although you cannot, of course, say whether uh, this species is in the act of diverging into multiple species. Uh, however, this this change in the vocalization could be an important step in that process if it is indeed going on. Yes, I mean, I think the uh, the flexibility, behavioral flexibility of great uh, helps them to survive in, in urban cities at the moment, and that's on an ecological time scale. But at the same time, that means that song learning may help them in uh, in adjustment, but that means that song learning also uh, accelerates the divergence between populations that are in a different habitat. And I think that is uh, uh, a requirement for maybe indeed uh, a next step on the evolutionary timescales uh, in the direction of reproductive divergence. Because if different environments lead to different selection pressures to all sorts of fitness-related traits, such as morphology or life history characteristics, uh, birds may start breeding earlier or later, may have larger broods or smaller broods. Um, and at the same time, if they diverge in the sexual traits, like their plumage, or what we studied, like their song characteristics, then those that in, uh, accelerate the divergence in sexual traits, that may help females to find males that are uh, adapted to the local environment. And if that's the case, then of course you may uh, accelerate assortative mating. Forest females, may have a preference for forest males that they pick out based on their song, and in the same uh, way, urban females may pick out urban males, and they recognize those based on the song. We don't know yet, and we probably will not find out, because that's 
as I said, evolutionary timescale, but a first step towards that process may have, uh, have been taking place. It's very interesting. I think most people probably think of speciation as a physical thing, but here you might have birds that are still, for the most part, physically identical, but because they can't communicate with each other anymore, that may be a barrier as, as fundamental as a mountain between two populations. Yes, and, and I don't think at the moment that great tits are unable to communicate uh, with forest birds, like in urban areas or, or, or vice versa. But I mean, we definitely may uh, have a uh, well look at the at the start of such a divergence. What's the big thing about this study? The the bird business is fascinating, but what's the uh, what's the bigger lesson about urbanization and wild populations? Yeah, well, that's maybe a difficult one because urbanization, of course, is not just the noise. There's many differences between the original habitat and the new habitat. Um, and also people are living in there and animals are living in there. And we know that not only birds may uh, may be bothered by the noise, but also people are bothered by the noise. We know that there's a, a relationship with noise levels in cities and uh, the risk of heart attack. We know that with noisy airplanes nearby, uh, the cognitive development slows down for uh, kids at schools. Uh, so the reading skills uh, are less uh, or are behind uh, if you compare that to schools which are not nearby an airport. So I think the problem of noise pollution is a, is a big one, not only for birds, but also for people. And I think if you compare it to other pollutants in cities, I think noise is maybe a tricky one, because the prognosis is that, like chemical pollutions or light pollutions, those may be brought down in the future, but the prognosis for noise pollution is that it's still going up. There's no strong lobby to get those cars out of cities. Dr. Slavikoran, thank you very much. Thank you for your interest. Slavikoran is the co-author of the book Nature's Music, the Science of Birdsong. For more info, just Google Birdsong and Hans, H-A-N-S. He comes up multiple times on the first page of results, and you didn't even have to spell Slavikoran. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, cross-cultural studies show that people worldwide all hear a ticking clock is going tick-tock. Story two, a new pit detector should keep your prunes more pit-free in the future. Story three, llamas have unusual antibodies that stay intact at high temperatures, making them good materials for us to use as biosensors. And story four, livestock worldwide are responsible for about one-fifth of all greenhouse gases. We'll be back with the answer, but first... The last two weeks we've been talking about the SA50, the year-end Scientific American list of 50 individuals and organizations helping technology develop for the benefit of society. To end the series, I spoke with Ivo Menzinger, Managing Director of Sustainability and Emerging Risk Management for the insurance company Swiss Re. Scientific American named Swiss Re our SA50 Business Leader of the Year. To find out how an insurance company made the list, I spoke with Menzinger at his office in Zurich. Mr. Menzinger, good to talk to you today. Good to talk to you. Tell me about Swiss Re. First of all, what what kind of company is it? All I know is it's an insurance company. Well, Swiss Re is actually a reinsurance company. That is our main business is um, insuring insurance companies. So uh, any what we call primary or direct insurers need protection for, for instance, large catastrophe events themselves. And that's what they purchase with us. I see. And uh, in 2005, I know that the company was uh, one of the developers of a big report on the economic con- consequences of global warming. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, this uh, report was actually a collaboration uh, with Harvard Medical School and uh, UNDP. UNDP, well, uh, United, United Nations United Development Program. Okay. And in in this collaboration, we try to com- as comprehensively as possible uh, to uh, describe what the consequences of climate change could be, especially under a life and health aspect and uh, in terms of ecosystems. And the conclusions were. Well, I think the conclusions were that the phenomenon of global warming has such wide implications on you know, not just in terms of extreme events, but also in terms of gradual changes that, uh, you know, consequences are um, significant uh, going forward in a very wide range of, of areas. It's interesting that from an economic point of view, your company has decided that it makes good economic sense to try to deal with this issue now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the climate change is going to stay with us. And uh, the issue is that if we act today, it will be economically make much more sense than uh, wait for another decade or so and then have to act under uh, more pressure and take even more serious, um, you know, to ch- undertake more serious changes. Do you find it ironic? Uh, most of the the global warming deniers seem to point to economic arguments to not do anything about global warming. Well, first of all, they'll often say that global warming isn't really happening, but then they'll argue that the steps that would be needed to deal with global warming are just too expensive. But it seems like it's too expensive really not to do anything about global warming. Absolutely. I think it's a myth. To think um, that you know the the economic consequences today would be uh, would be so, so severe. If you if you take a look at a recent study of Sir Nicholas Stern, he um, wrote a report on the economic consequences of climate change, and his conclusion is actually that in terms of economic costs to mitigate uh, the most severe consequences. It will cost about one percent of uh, GDP, uh, which basically translates into, um, if you if you take a look at the year 2050, at an average annual growth rate of GDP of uh, currently 3.2 percent. If we have, uh, you know, one one percent of uh, lower GDP growth, that that translates into the wealth level that we would have achieved on the 1st of January 2050 will actually be achieved, let's say, in the order of uh, May 2050. So the from a macroeconomic point of view, consequences are uh, not very severe. Tell me about, uh, I know that Swiss Re has taken steps internally to try to diminish its own environmental footprint. Um, I mean, first of all, we need to acknowledge that we are, as a financial services company, we do not have a very large footprint. But since we we are so vocal on the subject, um, to us it's a matter of credibility to also try to minimize our own carbon footprint. And we have actually started very early on um, to develop policies, for instance, internal policies, uh, to reduce our uh, energy consumption. We invest, for instance, uh, in our real estate uh, only in energy efficient buildings. 
we have in 2003 as the first major financial services company pledged to become greenhouse uh, neutral by the year 2013 by further reducing our own energy uh, consumption by 15% and by offsetting the remainder through an investment into the World Bank's uh, Community Development Carbon Fund. What's been the reaction within your industry to the steps that your company has taken? And first, in terms of our own carbon footprint, it has become uh, more common uh, than other financial services in, uh, industry players actually have taken the same steps. So if you look, for instance, at HSBC, or if you look at um, Swiss operations of Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse Bank, um, they ha- have in the meantime also uh, pledged to become greenhouse neutral. So it has become much more common, and, and um, I'm sure we will see more companies uh, following actually that example. And then uh, in, in, in with respect to the wider um, engagement on climate change, uh, there are other uh, players in the reinsurance industry and the insurance industry who have also been very vocal, and we are seeing more of, more of this um, all the time, actually. So within the industry, the science has been considered to be a mature science. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we, we have been following the scientific developments uh, for many years, and of course, it is uh, wise from our perspective to follow the majority, um, and the consensus view, which uh, in terms of you know global warming uh, happening, I think has been established quite a, for quite a while now. And uh, from our perspective, there's no doubt about um, you know climate change and the underlying uh, reasons for it. And so, dealing with it is just good business. Absolutely. Mr. Menzinger, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. The entire SA50 list is in the December issue of Scientific American and is available on the website, www.siam.com. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, everyone hears TikTok. Story two, better prune pit detector. Story three, llama antibodies' unusual stability makes them good candidates for biosensors. And story four, livestock behind one-fifth of greenhouse emissions. Time's up. Story four is true. A report by the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization says that the worldwide livestock industry produces a fifth of all greenhouse emissions. Some of that is the livestock themselves. All the time. And some is the result of emissions produced for creating and using the land that livestock live on. Story two is true. Department of Agriculture scientists have come up with a better prune pit detector. Prunes on a conveyor belt get gently pressed by a roller, a force transducer under the belt measures the resistance the roller encounters. A pit piece causes more resistance than the fruit flesh signaling a sorter to punt the prune. They're still rather badly wrinkled, you know. And story three is true. Most antibodies are two-stranded and fall apart at high temperatures, but llamas and camels have one-stranded antibodies, which are more stable. Researchers are looking at the llama antibodies, which react with specific molecules for possible use in biosensors. For more, see the news story, Llamas Recruited to Fight Against Biological Threats, at www.siam.com. 
All of which means that story one about everyone hearing a ticking clock as tick-tock is totally bogus. Because Japanese people, for example, interpret the ticking clock as going tock-tick. This is going to cause more confusion than a mouse in a burlesque show. What you hear turns out to be related to the natural rhythms of one's native language. For more, listen to the Tuesday, December 5th episode of the daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science, entitled Tick-Tock Talk. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. Well, when you, I say when you gotta go, you gotta go. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles and science video news at our website, www.siam.com. And the daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 